morning, Shakopee. How are you? Good. All right. Um, my name is Luke, as everyone has been saying, uh, and I'm one of the pastors here at Hosanna, and I kind of am in this place right now where I'm feeling a little bummed out by the snow, but I'm not quite over the edge of despair yet, but we'll see as time goes on, so look forward to that. Um, so it's really great to be with all of you. I'd like to uh, welcome the ushers forward to take this morning's tithes and offerings, and as always, we thank you for being a generous church who joins with us in this thing we're doing, multiplying the hope and heartbeat of Jesus. Uh, so thank you for doing that. And uh, a generous church is a church that moves forward, and we really love being part of a church that moves forward, definitely. So thank you. Uh, I'm going to get into this thing called Plan B that we're doing, uh, and I'm in the third, kind of the third part of Plan B in the, the first two weeks. How many of you have been here for the first two weeks of Plan B? Excellent. Uh, okay, so I want to recap really quick what Plan B is all about before I kind of move into this third section. And so the whole premise of Plan B is, is built on this Proverbs 19.21 verse, and it says, you can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose prevails. You know, simple, easy, right? Uh, that's kind of what it's based on. And so the first week of Plan B, we, we got into uh, talking about, it was actually Jen Alexander shared this idea of what Plan B is, so, or what Plan B versus Plan A. So Plan A is kind of this, this thing that we thought the way life was going to be, the, the way that we thought life was going to go, and maybe we were younger and we set out on this path, and then things start to crumble. And Plan B is the thing that we have to kind of look, look at and embrace and accept that replaces Plan A. And then Pastor Ryan came up the second week and talked about how Plan B, the way to embrace Plan B is to let go of the thing we're holding tightly to and to embrace Jesus, to surrender to Jesus. And so that's, uh, that's what Plan B looks like. That's what it means to embrace it. Uh, but now we're going to move into this third week because uh, something's been happening as we've talked about Plan B. Um, we've gotten emails from lots and lots of people and it's become very clear, very apparent to me, that, uh, that there's a lot of stuff going around. There's a lot of, a lot of issues that people are walk, walking through. And so this plan B idea is landing on real lives and real people and real experiences. And maybe that's you in the room right now. So what I want to do is I want to talk about what happens when plan B turns into plan C and plan D and plan E and plan F. And kids, what's the next one? Plan G. Great, awesome. You're all listening in school. That's great. I was confused, but uh, so plan, plan G. Plan, I'll go all the way forward. What happens when what we thought was happening falls apart, and now we have to embrace a whole new plan? And so before I do that, I want to kind of tell you just a little bit about uh, my story and kind of where I come from. Um, and there's this thing that happened to me when I was 18 years old. Maybe some of you have this experience as well. I kind of started feeling like the way Bob Dylan describes, like a rolling stone, you know? I really didn't have like a whole lot of direction. I didn't have a whole lot of meaning in my life. And so I, I tried to do a lot of different things to find out uh, who I was, what I was doing with myself. And, and one of those things I did was I tried to play in bands. And so I played in these three different bands. And just when things would start to go kind of well, uh, it would all fall apart. And then I'd be kind of stuck and left uh, in a place where I didn't know what to do. And then I'd get another one, and then that would fall apart. That happened three different times. Right around the time I was 19, as I was still kind of aimlessly, you know, going to parties and trying to make friends and not really succeeding and, and really chasing after the opposite sex a lot, as guys that age do, you know, and just like not quite sure what I wanted to be, what I wanted to do, uh, this opportunity came into my lap, and it was kind of a chance meeting, so it felt very, like, perfect, you know, and sometimes that happens where you're like, this is, this is meant to be. And so I had this opportunity to go on the road 
and do merchandising for bands that were touring. So you'd set up the merch booth and you'd sell t-shirts and things like that. And uh, I'll never forget, you know, driving Halloween night overnight down to Chicago, meeting up with this tour bus driver, and then uh, jumping on the tour bus with him, going down to Nashville to pick up the supporting act, and then going down all the way down to Dallas to pick up the headliner, and then straight southwest up to California, and we kicked off this national tour. And uh, it was a blast. You know, we went up through, San, uh, through L.A., through San Francisco, up through Sacramento, which is kind of forgettable, but hopefully no one's from Sacramento. Uh, and then all the way up you know, into Portland. And, and we stayed over for three nights in Portland, and it was a blast. We were having all this fun, and, and you know, it was kind of crazy. And I remember one of the guys saying to me, like, you're really good at this. Uh, you have a great personality. You, know, you, you connect with people. You make us a lot of money. We like that. And he said, you know, if you wanted for this to be a career, this could be your life. You know, this could be the next 20 years of your life if you wanted to, touring on the road like this. And, and I remember this feeling of like, I think I found what I want to do. I think I found a purpose. This is a blast, like a new place every night, new people, new parties, new craziness till 6 a.m., you know, all these fun things, right? Fun. Some of you that are a little older are like, fun, yeah. <laughs> um, so we drove out from Portland, and we were heading, ironically enough, towards Minneapolis uh, for a show, and... And, you know, you get across a pretty wide swath of the country when you do that. And it was right in the middle of January, so cold and snowy. And so we're driving across uh, Montana. And right in the middle of Montana, the tour bus driver gets, like, deathly ill, like food poisoning, I think. And so he was sick. So he had to kind of, like, pull over and take a break. And, and uh, he asked me, as the merch guy, can you drive the rest of the way to Minneapolis? And, of course, I wasn't qualified. I didn't have the right license or anything for it. But because I was excited and I was ready and this was, you know, this is plan A, right? I said, yes, I will. And so I jumped in that bus and I drove and I made it, you know, all the way across Montana and, and I hit that wide, flat stretch of desolation we call North Dakota, right? Uh, just flat wasteland as far as the eye can see. And I was driving and, uh, and, you know, it was snow and it was ice and, and the sun was coming up. I'll never forget, the sun was coming up and it was glorious. The colors were beautiful and I was feeling so alive with like, this is what I want to do. And, and suddenly I noticed a glint on the pavement of the freeway and before I knew it, I had hit these patches and I don't know how long they went, but the entire freeway was thick with black ice. You know, the kind of ice that's hard to see because it blends in with the blacktop, but then, uh, then suddenly you hit it, and before you know it, you're spinning. And so I started to feel the back end of the bus kind of swing one way. <laughs> and then it swung the other way, and, and I slammed on air brakes, which is, you're not supposed to slam on brakes either way, but slamming on air brakes, not a good idea, right? So I had this huge trailer, and I started to hear, feel the trailer behind me kind of swing, and I could even see in my rear views as the trailer swung to either side, and, and I was experiencing, you know, in, incredible terror and horror, and, and I remember, like, this crash as, my, as the bus kind of, like, 180'd and went down into this ditch between the two lanes, and, and I remember everything just going black. And when I woke up, my head hurt, and it looked like a bus had gone off on the inside, or like a bomb had gone off on the inside of this bus. It was terrible. I had, um, you know, from uh, the front of the bus to the back, just bottles strewn everywhere and garbage everywhere, and everything was just destroyed went outside, looked around, and the trailer had rolled and kind of torn open like a tin can, and there was just gear all over the place, and, and there was, uh, over, over on the freeway, a U-Haul had, had spun out behind us and had, like, spilled all of their furniture all over the freeway. And to add insult to injury, the thing that had knocked me out cold was a toaster <laughs> bouncing off of a window. 
Now, thank God, nobody was seriously hurt. You know, I had a headache for a couple days. Nobody was seriously hurt. But something started to happen to me as I, you know, kind of lived out this plan A story. Um, I kind of lost a little bit of the joy I had had in the beginning doing this. I started to kind of, my eyes started to kind of open a little bit, and I'd notice, oh, these are like 30-something guys, and they're still chasing after like really young girls, and, and they're partying till 6 a.m. and drinking, and all of them have like kids at home and stuff that they're, you know, trying to support at the same time, and they're calling home and crying at night and then getting drunk again. You know, it was like this thing. I started to see the reality of what I was in. I started to see how kind of, oh, this is not what I thought it was. And I remember uh, meeting this girl uh, in Cleveland, Ohio, and, and it was kind of like one of those crazy moments you have sometimes. You meet someone and, like, you always remember, right? So I met this, this girl in Cleveland, and we sat down and we talked and had coffee. And I remember her, like, we were talking about God, and we were talking about purpose and what we wanted to do with ourselves and our dreams and our hopes and all of this. And it was like in that moment, everything about plan A started to kind of crumble for me. And I realized there's a whole new thing out there for me to stand up and to do. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it looked like. I was disappointed because I had thought this was what I wanted, and it looked like now this was all sort of starting to fade away. It was almost like the moment that toaster bounced off my skull, uh, plan A kind of started to lose its grip, and plan B started rising up. What's plan B going to be? So I, uh, I got back home. And I remember going through this process. You know, I'd grown up in faith, but I'd kind of done the thing you do to sort of like held it up here at arm's length. And, and so I started to feel like maybe I need to like embrace this and welcome this into my life a little more and start trying to walk this path out a little bit. So I remember, you know, doing the thing you do where you get this sense of like calling. And you say, Jesus, I want you to come into my life and I want to follow you. Would you forgive me for everything I've done? Would you walk with me? Would you lead me? Would you guide me? I want you to be in control now. And I had this moment, moment of calling. And so I somehow, through crazy means, I found myself getting interviewed at a little church in Lakeville called Hosanna for this youth position. I was like 25 years old, horribly underqualified. So somehow I got it. I don't know how that works. Like the person who was interviewing me must have been, you know, sleeping or something. I don't know. But I got hired. And suddenly plan B started to become more clear to me. Like I never in a million years dreamed I would be doing ministry stuff. And so it started to look like this could be a career for me. Things are going well. And, and right around this time, I met a woman. And, and as we started kind of dating and connecting, and, and I had a little more solid ground and a little more maturity, uh, I, we started dating seriously. And then we got engaged. And then we got married. And I stepped into this calling and this ministry, and everything has been great ever since. Nothing but triumph upon triumph, joy upon joy, victory upon victory. Some of you started laughing immediately when I said that again. <laughs> you know, unless you're younger than 13 maybe, or maybe not even, you know that that's not the way life goes. It's not the way life goes. But wouldn't it be nice if that were the end of all our stories, you know? <laughs> if that's the way it ended. Plan A failed, plan B fell in our laps, we did the work, we came out the other side better than ever. And we all lived happily ever after. But we know this isn't the way it works. Uh, what I want to do is read to you a passage, and, and in kind of studying this this week, this passage, like, you know how sometimes something just kind of like blows your heart up a little bit? Like, I've read it a million times, but something about this really kind of rocked my world this week. And so I wanted to read this to you uh, out of John 21, 
And it's going to be starting in verse 15. But I want to give you just a little bit of background to kind of understand what's going on here. Uh, this, is, this is happening at the very end of the Gospel of John. So if you recall, the night that Jesus is betrayed, he's speaking to his disciples. And he says, I'm going to die, and all of you are going to abandon me. You know, all right, well, <laughs> good night, buddy. That's like a good story to tell the kids, right? At night. <laughs> good night. Um, I'm going to abandon, you're all going to abandon me, and, uh, and, and like not a single one of you is going to stand with me. And so if you think about it, the story in the Gospels is really a move from plan A to plan B, like the whole way through. You know, the disciples had a plan A in mind, the way things were going to go, and that looked something like Jesus using his superpowers to like Indiana Jones face melt the Roman Empire and destroy them so that he could take up rulership and power like on the throne and this new king would rule and everything would be great they would all be his right hand men and women and it would just be fantastic and life would be grand that's plan a and jesus comes and says nope not gonna look like that and peter the guy who like you know i maybe empathize the most with of anybody in scripture because peter always says what we're all thinking you know peter comes and says even if these other bozos over here fall away from you i would never fall away from you and jesus says let me tell you something not only are you going to fall away from me before the dawn comes before the rooster crows you're going to deny me three times you're going to say you don't even know me (laughs) and uh peter is bothered by this but what happens is and you might know the story is that jesus is uh is taken out to the temple and he's being uh he's being sort of tried, and it's this like kangaroo court a little bit, and, uh, and Peter's out in the courtyard, and he's listening in, and suddenly someone comes up to him and says, weren't you with him? I know you, I've seen you. And he goes, no, 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 not me. <laughs> and then someone else, it says a young woman comes up to him and says, I recognize you, you were with him. And he says, no, 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 not me. And then a third person comes up and says, I know you, you're his disciple. And he gets angry. He says he calls down curses. He's so angry. He says, I don't even know him. And then it says he hears the rooster crow. And he remembers. It's like in that moment, plan A just comes crumbling down for him in a very real and tangible and painful way. And suddenly he doesn't know what to do. And it says he goes out and he weeps bitterly. But... Thank God. Thank God that's not the end of the story. Three days later, what happens? The stone is rolled away. And this rumor starts that Jesus is alive. He is risen. We've seen him. He's appeared to us. And so Jesus begins appearing and begins speaking and begins uh, doing these crazy little teachable moments. He lets them touch him. He lets them engage with him. And it says that at the very end of the Gospel of John... He appears to his disciples in the morning and has breakfast with them. And that's what we're going to pick up here at verse 15 is exactly after all of this stuff has happened at the very end. Here's what Jesus says. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than all of these other folks here? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
And Peter was hurt (laughs) that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. (laughs) You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. So think about this just for a second. Peter, as this plan A has crumbled and he denies Jesus three times, and then Jesus appears to him and speaks with him, and how many times does he ask him, do you love me? Three times. It's like this beautiful, beautiful response to Peter's failure. Jesus says, oh no, it's not over. It's not over. I got a mission for you still. There's things for you to do. Here's the plan for you. This is plan B. This is like the most beautiful plan B reinstatement you can possibly imagine. You denied me three times. I'm going to ask you three times. Do you love me? If you love me, here's a mission. You're back in business, Peter. And so like for Peter, I imagine his heart's just bursting with this joy, knowing that, oh, it's, it's time to go forward. I, 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 I thought oh, everything was over, and now it's like plan B is coming together. But then... Jesus says this thing, and and when I read this, this is the thing that was kind of like, whoa, wait, what? Here's what he says in verse 18. I tell you the truth, when you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. And it says, Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. Then Jesus told him, Follow me. <laughs> just think about this for a second. Uh, Peter has just been given like the most beautiful plan B imaginable. Plan A crumbles. Plan B, it's here. And then literally the next second later, Jesus is like, yeah, here's plan C through Z. <laughs> you thought things were going to go this way? It's going to be good. You're going to have a mission, but something else is going to happen. And we know from history that the Apostle Peter was crucified, and he said he couldn't stand to be crucified in the same way that his Lord was crucified, so he was crucified upside down. The story ended for him in this way that all of us would look at and say, wait, what? That's plan B? C? D? I look at that, and I wonder. It makes me think, it makes me ponder. Uh, Ryan talked last week about the illusion of control that we sometimes feel like we have in our lives. I see Jesus here just taking like a machete to the illusion of control and just chopping it in half and opening it wide up. It's almost like he's saying, like, I don't want you to have any naivete about the way life is. And how does Peter respond then? This is the question. It reminds me of a story, and maybe you've heard this story. Have you ever heard the story of Sherlock Holmes and Watson camping before? Anyone? Cool. She knows it. All right. Um, So Sherlock Holmes and Watson are camping one night. They decide to go camping, and after dinner and a bottle of wine, they lay down for the night, and they go to sleep. Some hours later, Holmes awakes, and he nudges his faithful friend, and he says, Watson, look up at the sky and tell me what you see. Watson replies, oh, I see millions of stars. What does that tell you? Sherlock asks him. Watson pondered for a minute. Well, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I deduce that the time is approximately a quarter past three. 
Theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful and that we are small and insignificant. Meteorologically, I suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. Tell me, what does it tell you, Holmes? Holmes, silent for a minute, and then he says, Watson, you idiot, someone has stolen our tent. (laughs) That's apparently the world's funniest joke, I guess, as voted on by the world's joke police. I don't know who they like, who it is exactly, but they determined these things. Uh, The funniest joke. How does Peter respond? He utterly misses the point. The truth that's right in front of him. He looks back, it says. Take a look at this. It looks back. He turns around and saw behind them the disciple Jesus loved, the one who had leaned over to Jesus during supper. And he asked, Lord, who will betray you? Peter asked Jesus, what about him, Lord? Jesus replied, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. Peter misses the point. What's the first thing that kids learn, like the first concept children learn, right? Fairness, right? She has more. (laughs) He has more. You like him more. You like her more. That one was bigger than mine. Peter does this. He looks and he goes, this isn't fair. What about him? And Jesus' response is sobering and kind of gives me strength when I read it. He says, What does it matter what happens to him? You follow me. I have to say, as I think through teaching plan B, my greatest fear as we move through a series like this is that we would make the mistake of giving all of you and ourselves false expectations of what life with God is like. Because I had this tension in me that I'm sure many of you feel as well. It's like this thing pulling inside of me. And here's what it is. Here's how it goes. I believe that the kingdom of God is here. That in what Jesus Christ has done on the cross and in the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit, I believe that joy and freedom and restoration and healing and wholeness are, and all of these things are available to us right now exactly as we are right here. And as we open our hearts and our minds and we tap into them just as we sang about, he will pour that into us and then we will pour that out into other people. I believe this. I believe the Christian life is about joy and peace and, and righteousness and, and, uh, and just absolute eternal life in the presence of God and that we can constantly rejoice at the hope that we have and draw on it and pull from it. I believe this. Do you believe this? But at the same time, simultaneously, I have this tension because I also believe that everyone who follows Jesus has to walk a cross-shaped path Everybody who follows Jesus has to take up their cross, lose their life, deny themselves, and follow him. I think about plans C through Z, and I just know as a pastor, you know, how do I hold these two things in tension when on one day, on a Sunday, I celebrate you know, the birth of a child and, and an infant baptism and we hold this child up and we anoint them and we bless them and we say, this is the greatest day of these parents' life right now. And then the very next week, you go to a hospital or a hospice visit where someone's body is breaking down and you, and you have to be with the family as they say goodbye and walk through all of those emotions. 
how do we hold these two things together? We can't stay over here and we can't stay over here. There has to be some way to hold them in tension and feel the balance. And how do we do this? I think that's really the question. Um, I'm going to throw this picture of this rock up here. Anyone ever see a rock or find a rock like this when you were younger, out and about? I remember finding some of these rocks uh, when I was a little boy, like in this like dirt heap that was over kind of by our house. And my friend and I thought we had stumbled upon some sort of buried treasure. You know, if you look at that, what color, you know, it's kind of a gold color, right? And so we had thought that we had found gold or maybe a meteorite, you know, a valuable, precious gem from outer space. (laughs) And I remember my friend and I like plotting all the ways we were going to sell it and make all this money, you know, make this thing happen. In reality, this is what they call slag or dross. Uh, This is kind of the waste products from precious metals that have been smelted or been melted down. And you find these sometimes in places where people have discarded them. But I held on to that slag for months, you know, like it was valuable, like a treasure to me. Like it was going to get me somewhere. (laughs) And I think if I had to sum up... um, the state of the culture, like how we live and what we take in and how we walk and what we think is important. I think if I had to sum it up with one phrase, I'd say confusing slag for gold. Confusing slag for gold. You know, we think we're holding on to something valuable. We think we know what life is about, what matters, what really matters. And we spend years and years and years chasing that down and and trying to have this picture and this vision of it. And and that's the plan A. And then maybe God does something in our lives. And so plan A starts to crumble and then there's plan B again. But in my experience, plan B is no guarantee. And even embracing plan B is no guarantee that we won't start to do this again. We won't start to take the invaluable or the stuff that's not valuable and treasure it like it's valuable. Mistaking slag for gold. Um, (laughs) There's a story, it's an old story, about this man who was praying to God. He's out in the woods and he's walking and he feels close to God. So he prays to him and God says, yes. And the man says, "Uh, can I ask a question? Go ahead. So the man says, God, what is a million years to you? Show me. God said, a million years to me is only a second. Hmm, the man wondered. Then he asked God, what is a million dollars worth to you? God said, a million dollars to me is a penny. So the man said, God, can I have a penny? And God cheerfully said, sure, in a second. (laughs) Um, God is different than us. You know, I know it's not a huge, deep point necessarily, but God is different than us. Um, I know, and I've, I've begun to see this more, that God's idea of what is valuable, of what matters, is so vastly different from ours, to the point that some of the things we hold on to and think matter look like waste, waste product from the really valuable thing. I've begun to think over time that maybe, you know, we have the plans, we have the thoughts, what am I supposed to do? 
How am I supposed to live out my purpose, my calling, whatever else? We have these plans, we have these thoughts. I begin to think that maybe the point of being a follower of Jesus after everything is said and done is simply putting ourselves in a position where our heart can begin to align with him so that the things he values also become the things we value. So that we stop dedicating our lives and our hearts to these things, these rocks that are worthless. I don't know what God's perfect plan is for any of us. I can't say that for you. I can't say that for myself. But here's what I do know beyond a shadow of a doubt. I know that from the moment you were born to the moment you take your last breath on this earth and step into his presence unfiltered in all of its glory and all of its reality, I know that he is after your heart. I know that he wants your heart. Of all of the things that you could do, of all of the things you could accomplish, the thing he wants more than anything else is you. Is you. And in my experience, if we have a lot of that slag and that dross at the center of us, and we want to walk with him, and we want to know his will for us, and we want to be in relationship with him, some of that stuff is going to have to get melted down so that the gold can come to the top. Which is interesting, because if you look at Peter, at the very end of his life in the letter, First Peter, he says, the things that we go through, the trials and the persecutions and the pain, the deep, real pain and loss that we experience are perfecting something in us that is more valuable than gold. It's more valuable than gold. I know that some of you that are a little older and have walked through loss after loss, you're starting to see this more. You're starting to see this more. Um, I want to tell you the end of my story, at least as I know it. <laughs> um, I remember very vividly the day when I got the phone call in the morning, and it was my wife on the phone, and she said to me, uh, this relationship is not working, and I want a divorce. It's over. And I remember this feeling, you know, driving to the parking lot at Hosanna in Lakeville and, and sitting there for like an hour before and just sitting there with my head in my hands, you know, thinking, what am I going to do? What do I do? What's the step this was plan B. Plan A fell apart. I thought this was the plan. But now this is falling apart too? And I remember going into the office and sort of wandering around with a dazed look on my face until I found myself in Pastor Julia's office with her and sitting across from her. And I remember as I, I put my head down on the desk and I just wept and wept and I poured out my heart of all of the ways that I had contributed to the breaking down of this marriage and all of the things that I regretted and all of the only if, if only I had done this, then this plan would have worked out. I'll never forget the feeling as Julia put her hand on my hand and she said to me, Luke, Luke, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. You can't take the weight of that on yourself. 
And as she spoke comfort to me and she spoke truth to me and she spoke love to me, I began to be filled with this sense. And, and it's in, impossible to explain unless you've been through something like this, but I was filled with this sense that despite all of the, whatever I was walking through, all of the pain, all of the darkness that I was going to see at some point, I was going to see the goodness of God. I was going to see his light break through. But I'll tell you, and this is maybe what you need to hear some of you right now, it was about a year and a half of darkness after that. A year and a half. But here's, here's what I learned. Um, there are some understandings, there are some depths, there are some aspects of God's character, of who he is, some dimensions to his love that can only be experienced when we are in the middle of the fire. When we are in the middle of the shadow, you think of the psalmist, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me in the shadow too. And I begin to have this experience. It reminds me, I read this devotional by Corey Tenboom, if you're familiar with Corey Tenboom. Uh, Corey Tenboom was was this woman who uh, sheltered Jews during the Holocaust and then wound up getting locked up herself in a camp. And she wrote a book called The Hiding Place, and it's all about how she got through that time and how the Lord gave her strength in the midst of the horror and the pain. And one of the things that she says is, you know, the scriptures use this image over and over again that God will hide us in the shadow of his wing. And she said, sometimes it feels that dark because we're so, so close to him. Because he's so close to us. Because we're tucked away in the shadow of his wings. And I experienced this as I walked through what could have felt like emptiness and darkness. I began to experience in the midst of it this strange sense that even though it was dark and, and I didn't know, I couldn't even tell what tomorrow would hold. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know how my life was going to turn out. But in the midst of it, he was with me. And his love was working on me and, and refining me and moving through me. And I began to come to this conclusion that instead of plans, the blueprint to know how it's all going to turn out, I just wanted presence. I just wanted proximity to him. I just wanted to be with him like when we sing and we worship and we have that sense of closeness to him. I just wanted that. I didn't care how it turned out. I didn't turn, care how my life worked out. I didn't care about any of that. I wanted his presence. I wanted his love. I wanted the identity above all the other knowledge and all the other thoughts that I might have and ideas about him. I wanted him just like he wanted me. So God is this God who gives us breakthroughs and revelations and bold faith to step out and take risks as we go on this path. And God is often a God who sits with us also and says, wait. And what God does in the waiting is oftentimes more important than what he does at the end of the journey. So, I know waiting is hard. I know waiting is agonizing sometimes, and the emails we've gotten from people that tell us they're in the middle of the waiting, I know it's hard, and I know it seems like darkness. And all I can say to you 
in the midst of it is, I don't know what plan D-E-F-G-H-I-J-K for me is, but I know that he's worth it. I know that he's worth it. Um, my plan C is working out well right now. And I told you about that girl I sat down with and met in Cleveland and connected with. Well, she's in the back right there. Um, I got married to her a year ago, and we're expecting our first child in February. Um, that's Priscilla. Uh, plan C is working out well for me. But I've been alive long enough to know that plan C can turn to plan D. Plan D can turn to plan E. That pain can come. That confusion can come. But even if plan B turns to plan C, you have to know this. You have to know that the restoration and the healing and the shaping and all of the things that he's doing in the midst of your life will then be turned to a great purpose when the time comes and when you are released, the very wounds and the pain and the rawness that you've experienced will be the conduits through which he heals others. Amen. And I saw this. I saw it just again on Thursday as I shared my story with the group of moms because of my expertise on being a mom. But uh, <laughs> I shared my story with the group of moms and I shared walking through this divorce process. And at the end, this young woman came to me and she said, I'm in the middle of that with my husband and my parents are going through it too. And I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn. And so the group of us sat with her and we prayed and we sensed and we felt and we experienced that closeness of God in the midst of this broken place. So whatever happens, whatever plan C looks like, I think Jesus is saying one thing to us today in the midst of all of this. If you had to boil this whole talk down to one point, it would be this. Don't worry about that person to your left or to your right. What their plan is, you follow me. You follow me. Down into the valley, through the valley of the shadow of death, up to the mountaintop where the light pours in and the joy breaks out, into the lives of others and you bring restoration and you bring healing and you bring wholeness to them and they bring that back to you. You Follow me. So I want to throw a, a slide up here really quick. And just in your heart or maybe even out loud, I just want everyone to say this with me today and, and put your name in there. Let this be Jesus' call to you today in this moment as we finish up this Plan B series that no matter what the future holds, you, Luke, you, Julia, you, Drew, you follow me. You follow me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this group of people and all of the ways that you are moving in the midst of their plans, their plan A's and their plan B's and their plan C's and D's and so on. And I ask today, Father, that your Holy Spirit would be very real and would be very present in the lives of those who are in the darkness that they would sense, Father, that even though they walk through that fire, you are with them and they will not be consumed. Their hearts will not be consumed. They will come out that other side with a purpose that is far more valuable and a weight that is far more heavy and weighty than gold. 
And I pray for those, Father, who are in that place where everything is working out together. I ask that you would give them boldness to step forward into the future and to say yes to the things you have called them to. And everybody else in between, show them where to go, lead them, walk with them, love them, be present with them. Help them to follow. In Jesus' name, amen. We're about to move into a time of worship, just giving God back some of the things we're feeling and giving him praise for who he is, for his name that's above every other name. Before we do that, I wanted to make you aware of something. If you are in the midst of a time where you're thinking, uh, I want to kind of know what God's next purpose is or God's next plan for me is, we have a core course called God's Story, Your Story. It's a six-week course. Pastor Julia and I have put it together. We've, uh, we teach it when other people come and teach as well. And it's our means of kind of helping you connect in with what God is doing in the world and what his will for your life is going forward. So I'd encourage you to come to that. It starts a week from Monday in Lakeville uh, and then a week from next Thursday here. So to the 25th here in Shakopee. So make sure you come. We meet on Thursday nights in Shakopee from 6.30 to 8.30. There's the plug. Come to that if that seems like it's worth it to you. Otherwise, all of you should come to it anyway. So let's worship. 